0: Today's episode of the SSR Podcast will, as always, give you the book talk that you love, but it will also give you a lesson in history and culture, specifically Jewish culture. Our focus is Jane Yolen's The Devil's Arithmetic, which was published in 1988. Before long, it had garnered many prestigious awards and a lot of critical praise. But if I do say so myself, the impact it had on real young readers was even more important. The Devil's Arithmetic is a time travel Holocaust novel in which a Jewish 13-year-old named Hannah is transported back to 1941 Poland, where she is called Haya and brought to a horrific work camp with her new community. Through this experience, Hannah learns why she must remember her history, which she was not excited about prior to the time travel. Like all Holocaust literature, The Devil's Arithmetic gets into some upsetting material and hard truths. I encourage you to keep this in mind before you listen but I also encourage you to challenge yourself to engage with this episode. If there's one thing we can learn from Hannah and today's guest, it's that remembering history matters. In addition to the theme of memory, my guests and I talk about the importance of different kinds of Jewish representation, tattoos, our relationships and experiences with Holocaust survivors, and quiet heroism. We also discuss what is extra special and powerful about the devil's arithmetic in the world of Holocaust literature. This week's guest is a real subject matter expert, and I know you're going to love learning from her as much as I did. Meet Dr. Samantha Vinikar Meinrat. She's a lifelong Jewish educator and learner, an expert in teen identity development, and has had the pleasure of living and teaching in New York, Washington, D.C., Cleveland, and Israel. An award-winning educator, Samantha is the author of Hashtag Antisemitism, Coming of Age During the Resurgence of Hate a nonfiction look at how anti-Semitism is shaping the experience and identities of Generation Zers. She lives in Westchester, New York, with her husband, new baby, and two beloved rescue dogs. Follow Samantha on Instagram at Sam underscore and learn more about her work at www.SamanthaVinokarMindrath.com. When you tapped to listen to this episode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you tune in, you might have noticed that it is episode 199. I can't believe I'm saying this, but that means that we are just a week away from our 200th episode, as well as the four-year anniversary of SSR. I'll be running some fun giveaways next week to celebrate, but I'm also asking you to join me for another part of the party, a push to get 100 patrons into our Patreon community. If you've ever considered becoming an SSR patron, for $1, 5 or $10 per month, now is the time to do it. Learn more and join us at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. You'll get all kinds of rewards. Access to our Discord channel, an invitation to our SWR book club, SSR merch, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, reading recap videos, and more. You can also share some extra love for the podcast as part of this 200-episode celebration by leaving a 5-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, sharing about the show with friends and loved ones in real life or on social media, or picking up the books on your TBR on mybookshop.org storefront. Check it out at www.bookshop.org slash shop slash ssrpod. You'll be supporting the podcast, indie bookstores, and let's be honest, your own reading habit at no extra cost to you. You can always feed your reading habit with audiobooks too. Have you heard of LibroFM? It's a great alternative to Audible because it allows you to support independent bookstores instead of a giant corporation. We all rely on Amazon for a lot of things, but since audiobooks are delivered to your phone immediately no matter where you buy them, this is a great place to make the switch. The audiobooks you get from Libro.fm will sound and cost the same as the ones you buy from the big guys. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O F-M, and use code SSR podcast when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school-era abbreviation for Silent Sustained Reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old-school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Allie Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Samantha. Welcome to SSR.
1: Hi. Thank you so much for having
0: me. I'm thrilled to have you on, so you are a listener of the podcast, and you are joining us today as a real subject matter expert, and you pitched yourself to me as a guest on the show, so this is a message to all of you out there. If you are an expert on a subject, and you feel like you have some books that you can sort of speak to as a subject matter expert, send me an email like Samantha did, Hello, SSRPod at gmail.com. Samantha comes to us as a Jewish educator and as the author of a new book, which we'll talk about more at the end of the episode, but I guess I'd love to start, Samantha, can you tell us a little bit more about your specialty and like how you ended up as a Jewish educator and then we'll talk more about the book.
1: Yeah, so I think I was kind of always set up to be a Jewish educator, mostly because the way that I like to identify is as a lifelong learner. I was privileged enough, I don't know, forced to, given the opportunity to participate in Jewish education from the youngest of ages. Went to Hebrew school, which a lot of people I know didn't like. I feel like that's a really common trope, but I am a lifelong nerd, so loved it. And basically just kind of kept continuing. I had no idea as a kid that like, Jewish communal professional outside of the clergy was a thing, but as I, went through like youth groups and camp and all sorts of different experiences. My role models were these people. And I was like, oh, you could be that when you grow up Like, people get paid to do this. I feel like any job that you're shocked that people get paid to do is probably the one you're supposed to be doing and is the most fun. And my expertise became Jewish teens. I felt like the middle school, high school years, as many listeners to this show, I'm sure can agree with, are really an opportunity to transform someone. If you meet someone at those stages, and have an impact on them, it reverberates out through their whole lives. I know that's definitely what happened to me with the people who mentored me at those ages. And I wanted to be that for someone else. So my first jobs were really hands-on working with teens. As I've advanced, it then moved towards the research end. I did my master's, I did my doctorate, and now I work in the nonprofit space in the Jewish education world, focusing on identity development, peoplehood, and anti-Semitism,
0: which is the topic of my upcoming book. Thank you for sharing that background. So I I know you listen to the show, and I have talked a little bit about my relationship with religion and specifically Judaism in the past. But for those listeners who are new, and because it's relevant, I will give a quick sort of summary as a refresher. So I grew up with one parent who is Jewish and one parent who is Christian. My mom, I would say, identifies as culturally Jewish. Um, my grandmother did as well. And so I grew up much more entrenched in the cultural traditions of Judaism than I did in the religion of Judaism, which I think is a pretty common experience for a lot of people. My dad is more religious as a Christian. So I think I have a better understanding or I grew up at least with a better understanding of like the faith elements of Christianity. But I think both of my parents were a little nervous to touch the subject. And so to no fault really of anyone, like I just don't think I ever really felt like I could fall either way into a religion, but as I've gotten older, I would say that I identify pretty firmly as culturally Jewish just because those are the traditions that I'm leaning into more as I get older, and I, my husband really like loves learning more about Jewish traditions, and so we're learning them together, but I'm always excited to learn all the more reason that I'm excited to have you on the show and all the more reason that I'm looking forward to revisiting this intense book. yeah, this was a really hardcore book. (laughs) This was hardcore. We are talking about The Devil's Arithmetic by Jane Yolen. It was one of a few books that you suggested, Samantha, and I recognize the title. And I think the others that you listed were maybe Babysitter's Club books. And we I think I sort of was like pick whichever one you want. And we went with Devil's Arithmetic. Tell me why you decided to go with this one.
1: So I was really torn actually between this and I'm trying to remember which Babysitter's Club book I had suggested to you. I think it w- it was definitely an Abbey book because obviously yeah. the Jewish member of the club. And I was really torn because the Babysitter's Club and like the Abbey portrayal really appeals to me because she is a normal person. What I read a lot of historical fiction growing up and a lot of Holocaust fiction, which I'm sure we can get into as the conversation unfolds, but like Abby and the Babysitter's Club, it was being Jewish in a way that was just like fun, that she reminded me of me, she's funny, she's from Long Island, she has curly hair. Her Judaism, other than like the book where she has her bat mitzvah, isn't her defining character trait, but it comes up throughout that she has Hanukkah parties or she uses Yiddish phrasing kind of thrown in. It felt really normal. I felt seen by Abby. Holocaust fiction is obviously different. It's very much not like this is a full well-rounded person who happens to be Jewish. It's like we are putting the jew in jewish with yes. holocaust fiction i think around the time that i suggested it though was like as we were seeing like the mouse like comic um graphic novel being banned in schools and i think there's a lot happening right now with an uptick into anti-semitism with questions about holocaust education so it felt really pressing to revisit like a some of these like more powerful holocaust nonfiction for these middle grade learners. So I think that was kind of what pushed me towards this is a conversation to be having right now and like we should also be talking about the proactive positive Jewish
0: identity that Abby provides. Um so yes and. Yes and, we will talk about Abby at another time. Do you remember anything about reading The Devil's Arithmetic as a kid? I know that I read
1: it and I had remembered it was a time travel book and that there was a Passover Seder component, but as I was rereading it, I was in absolute shock at like how young I think I was when I first read it and how much now as a an adult, it like really affected me. And can I tell like a random anecdote? Okay, so I was, as I said, a nerdy kid, a really good kid, If I got in trouble as a child, it was for really specific things. And an iconic moment in my family was, I was reading a Holocaust book. It was not Devil's Arithmetic, but I don't remember the title of it. And it depressed me so much that i was like lashing out at my younger siblings and my mom took the book away and hid it in between the towels in like the linen closet oh my gosh and in the middle of the night i snuck out of my room and took back my holocaust book (laughs) to finish reading it and she retook it away and to this day uh, i'm 32 right now As far as I'm aware, it's still in between the towels in this closet. And as I was rereading Devil's Arithmetic, I was feeling so sad that like my husband noticed. I was like, oh, I think you might have to take it away from me and put it in the towels because this was really intense.
0: It was extremely intense. And I too remember reading it when I was a kid. I remember as a a kid who was trying to figure out like this whole religion thing that always felt very off limits to me just because of my family circumstances being a child of divorce and two parents who who engaged in different traditions and had different beliefs. I always was really excited when I stumbled on books or any kind of pop culture that gave me a chance to understand Jewish history and traditions a little bit better. Like the Prince of Egypt was Amazing. I could still sing the entire soundtrack uh, right now if, if called upon. That soundtrack was so good. And even as like a seven-year-old in 1997 or whatever it was, I was like, yes, like I deeply understand these people in ancient Egypt. And obviously some of it was like just me being a kid and trying to understand, but I do think it's a testament to how powerful even a little bit of representation can be in a world that often... Exposes like one type of person or one tradition. And so I'm sure when I found The Devil's Arithmetic, I was like, great, here's another story where I can see a piece of myself and maybe understand a little bit more about where I come from. I would echo what you're saying about just the intensity of the book. So just to sort of put a timestamp on this, listeners, we are recording this on May 31st. I personally was reading it in the days after the school shooting in Texas. And so the world was already feeling very heavy. And I knew just because of my very vague memories of this book. And knowing, of course, that it's a Holocaust novel, I was like, okay, I I really had to brace myself because I was bracing myself really for everything after what's been going on. And it's sort of like in a weird way it it gave me an outlet to kind of feel my feelings a little bit in a way. I do think we've become so desensitized in a way that's like so uncomfortable to even talk about. Like we're so desensitized to the news sometimes. And so sitting down with this book and like reminding myself of what it is to really feel for individuals who are involved in tragedy. I hate that we need to be reminded of that, but I do think there's power in like layering those experiences on top of each other. Yeah, I absolutely
1: agree and while the shooting in Texas was not you know anti-semitically motivated it definitely speaks to what it is to be vulnerable what it is to be in this position where the world feels really dark and this book was really dark and it's meant to be and there's you know a reason for it and there's a time and a place for that darkness and hopefully hopefully
0: by the time others are listening to this there's a little bit more light coming through as well hopefully in late June, it's a little bit different. So a couple of quick accolades for this book, which I want to share before we get into it. It was published in 1988. And it won the National Jewish Book Award for Children's Literature in 1989. It was Jane Yolen's like 100th plus book. She at this point has written like 400 books, which is wild. Yeah. And this is it was the first book she wrote that really was steeped in Judaism or in Jewish characters, Jewish history. Her editor suggested to her that she write what she called a Jewish story. Um, Her editor at the time was married to a rabbi and was really encouraging her to do this. And Jane Yolen apparently like didn't feel qualified because like me, she didn't feel like she had been raised like Jewish enough. And she told her editor that she felt as though she would have to do as much research for this kind of book as somebody who wasn't Jewish at all but she did. Um, She spent a little time brainstorming. She had the idea really for this like time travel novel. She at that point was known more as like a fantasy author. So that was what kind of started this whole thing. It's interesting if you Google this book, the genre listed in a lot of places is like sci-fi fantasy, which is interesting. interesting. So weird. But that's what unlocked the story for her. She wrote the first chapter, sent it to her editor, and her editor immediately sent over a contract. So that's how this book came to be. I am told that the Devil's Arithmetic movie adaptation is quite good by most people who have DM'd me. It stars Kirsten Dunst as main character Hannah and Brittany Murphy as Rivka. Wow. I Yeah, ra- twists. I don't think either of them are Jewish, which is an interesting choice. I think one that would probably be different today. And I believe the script for that movie won an emmy and i believe it won another emmy it was a made for tv movie that was on showtime weirdly if you if you look up the trailer on youtube a lot of things come up but none of them have real audio like they all just have this really traumatic instrumental music over it and i i wanted to like hear the characters talking but there must be a rights issue so i do plan to watch it at some point when i'm like feeling a little bit more mentally prepared i've heard from a few jewish folks who said that they loved the movie and then a few people who identify openly as not Jewish. And they're like, I I feel like maybe I didn't get it as much. And like, I know that it meant a lot more to Jewish people than it did to me. So also worth noting. And this book was really well received. It got stellar reviews. I'm sure some of them will come up in this conversation. And I'm looking forward to digging into this book with you. So we meet Hannah, a 12, almost 13 year old in New Rochelle, New York. And she is going to Seder. And Passover was not so long ago now as we record this, Samantha. Samantha. And for those who don't know what Seder is, I'm sure you can explain it better than I can, although I love a Seder and I do not relate to Hannah's feelings about it being boring. Samantha, fill in our listeners about what they might expect if they were to go to a Seder. Absolutely. So a Seder is the traditional meal and set
1: of rituals that comes with the holiday of Passover. Outside of Israel, where there's only one Seder, uh, most people, if they're going to celebrate Passover, have two Seders. Obviously, every family is different and some just do the one night. Seder literally means order. So there's a traditional holiday meal, but it's all accompanied by ritual. There's a whole set of different things that you do as you retell the story of the Exodus from egypt together with a lot of rabbinic commentary from different ancient sources together with a lot of really specific foods and activities around them and the whole meal and experience is centered around the children the commandment for passover one of many but specifically the one that really ignites the seder is this commandment to teach the story to your children and to tell the story as though you yourself had personally gone out of egypt that each person around a seder table is meant to really embody in this like to put on my educator hat experiential learning way each of us went out of Egypt and we have to convey that to the next generation so Hannah and her brother Aaron are like the only kids at their Seder I think that's part of why I didn't I also did not relate to her boredom I love the Passover Seder but I'm blessed to have multiple siblings and cousins and it was always really fun and exciting and it seems like hannah's second seder gave off that vibe because as she's going to the first seder where it's all these like older relatives and they're kind of weird she was saying that she was excited for night two and that i definitely related to because we did first night with one side of the family second night with the other side when i was growing up and both sides of my family are amazing but there's definitely quirks and what you're excited about with the first one and what you're excited
0: about with the second one For sure. Well, thank you for giving us that explanation. I have always loved Seder. Passover is one of my favorite Jewish traditions. I think for me, it started as a kid because also a nerd, I just like love reading aloud. (laughs) I appreciate that. (laughs) And part of at least the way my family does Seder, and I imagine most families do Seder is you go around the table and everybody reads from the Hagada, which is the book that guides you through all of the rituals of the evening. And I love that even at like seven or eight years old, I was allowed to be part of that. And I don't know that I ever was like the youngest at a point when I could read the four questions, but I was like fine with that because I was like, the four questions is for kids. Like, I'm going to read the stories with the grownups. That's awesome. Yeah. I liked the food. Like, I really just enjoyed the, the vibe, if you will, of Seder. Absolutely. Hannah, like not so much. As you said, Samantha, her family is like kind of weirding her out. She's very much in this like 12, 13 year old stage of like, I just want to hang out with my friend Rosemary at the mall. And like Easter is so much cooler than Passover, which I think if we're being honest, a lot of Jewish kids can relate to at certain times of the year. Like December is a hard time to be a Jewish kid. And and I would imagine the springtime as well. Easter is at least according to the media and to like mainstream pop culture, like Easter seems like a cooler holiday. I'm all about going the day after Easter
1: and buying the leftover chocolate. So I can only imagine the lived experience is that much better.
0: Yeah, I mean, I because I've, I've always gotten to kind of like dip my toe into both traditions. The candy for Easter is stellar, but you don't get to have a Seder. But Hannah is just like mad. She's annoyed. She's embarrassed about her family. She has this grandpa, Grandpa Will. And they have a weird, strained relationship. A lot of it is because she just finds him kind of creepy. He's always yelling at the TV and like just kind of like bursting out with these comments about remembering and like nobody remembers and I was there. And they also had an encounter years ago when Hannah was a kid related to her grandpa's tattoo.
1: Yeah. So grandpa's this Holocaust survivor and clearly has this residual trauma that we see him like yelling at the TV. And I'm not entirely sure why like the whole family has decided to trigger him by putting on a Holocaust TV program. I feel like there's uh,
0: some choices. Yeah. Happy Passover. Some
1: choices that they're making that I'm like, you didn't need to set him up to fail like that but i was really struck by the um anecdote that you're referring to where hannah grows up seeing the numbers on his arm as a kid and i know this is a thing that people do uh or children have done tattoos her own arm and writes in ink like a random string of numbers wanting to i don't know if it's
0: wanting to be like him or to honor him but he freaks out (laughs) In a way that i can imagine being very scary for a little kid and not only because it's scary to see anybody that you love yell but because she thought that it was like a thing that he was i think she thought it was a thing that they were going to connect over like she was like look i have one too and maybe they had kind of a a distant relationship before and it felt to me like she was trying to give him sort of an olive branch and like look at us we both have tattoos or we both have these numbers like she didn't know at the time what it meant And he not only got mad, but he got mad about something that she really was like hoping to impress him with.
1: It's so interesting because now it's a thing. I don't know how widespread it is, but there have been several articles in recent years about grandchildren of Holocaust survivors who get their grandparents' numbers tattooed on them. And I've seen these really powerful photos where you'll have the arm of the Holocaust survivor and they're old, they're wrinkled, they have the loose skin and these really strong arms of their young grandchildren with the same numbers. And it's meant to be like a defiance or an honoring. And I'm doing this proactively so that people will remember and it won't go away. And I could only imagine my grandma who I would say more Grandpa Will vibes than vibes of someone who would be like, wow, what an amazing way to honor me by tattooing your own arm. Freaking out beyond words. But then I'll, so I'm like a little bit like skeeved out by it. But then I'll see these photos and I remember seeing one. I'll see if I can find it. That it's like the elderly person's arm, this young grandson's arm. And then they're holding the great grandson, like the baby And it is really powerful, but I also can completely see someone being like, this is the deepest trauma possible. It's not something that I want my grandchild to then
0: tattoo onto themselves as well. It's complicated, too, because tattoos are a no-no in Judaism to begin with. And I have tattoos which my grandmother, who is no longer with us, did not know about by my mother's request, which I respected. But I have since gotten another tattoo that's actually in her handwriting on my arm. And there is a part of me that feels like I am taking back like some of the power of of this like notion of having these tattoos on your arms. I have a cousin who has a Hebrew saying tattooed on him. Like I, I understand that there is this theological issue with tattoos in Judaism. But as we are moving forward in time, I like to see from like a cultural perspective, how that power is coming back. And it's of course, everybody's personal choice and people are raised with different ideas about what should and shouldn't be done. But it is interesting as I see more and more Jews with tattoos to like hear why they decided to do that. Because I'm sure like most Jewish grandparents, no matter what their background, like most Jewish grandparents probably are not thrilled about their grandchildren having tattoos. No. I was
1: wondering if I would if I had like a residual memory of this book that I don't recall because I do not currently have any tattoos. I have really wanted one, but I can say the only time I've ever woken up like screaming from a nightmare was that I got a tattoo and my grandpa found out. And I like had, and I was like, maybe that was Grandpa Will vibes that like- Maybe. Maybe I read this book and then thought that my grandpa would be like, scary angry at me I still have not bit the bullet more of a needle thing than a theological thing but I do have the honor that my handwriting is somebody else's like Hebrew tattoo that's cool so I don't have any on my own body but someone asked me to do that and I was like this is a really specific honor and I am here for it um mostly because I never thought that I had good handwriting So for someone to think it's good enough to want it on their own bodies was very resonant for me.
0: That's very cool. Well, keep us posted on your tattoo journey. I had a dream once. So I'm like very connected to my grandmother. Like I have lots of dreams about her and I feel like she's very much still here. I I had a dream shortly after she passed away where she was basically like, I knew the whole time. Like I've always known. Like I'm not... They always know, she's like, I'm not that mad, but like, I appreciate you hiding it, which was always, it was always like a respect thing. Like it was never about showing it off. I just wanted to do it for myself. And if it was more respectful to cover it, I was always gonna cover it. Out of curiosity, Samantha, and if you're comfortable talking about it, do you have anybody in your family or did you grow up with anybody in your family who was a Holocaust survivor? Yes, so I grew up, um, I would say,
1: with a combination of Holocaust survivors and what I would say those affected by the Holocaust and the difference that I give to it. So my gra- my maternal grandmother um, who passed away last year, who I was also incredibly close to and remain very connected to, was born in Berlin and her life was shaped by the Holocaust. Um, she and my great grandparents emigrated to the United States when she was seven years old. After the Nazis came, to power. But I would say her Holocaust story, it was always a really interesting dynamic for me because her cousins, who I also grew up with as role models and leaders in our family, had a traditional Holocaust narrative stories of the camp, stories of death marches, the stories that people write books about, quite frankly. They, I knew that they were survivors. They like had the gravitas of. I don't know, the street cred of these traumatic stories when I was growing up. I've since, of course, realized like that's not necessarily a privilege and how how deeply wounded some of these individuals were, but they were always just like amazing, larger than life figures for me. My grandma's story was shaped by the Holocaust. She's affected by the Holocaust. She was a victim of the Holocaust. Her life was centered around The before and after of it. But I didn't think of her as a survivor in the same way because her story wasn't as dramatic. My great grandparents had a uh, business in Berlin, they were Polish Jews who had moved to Germany. um, And my great grandfather was a furrier. And the story that I, very Jewish story here.
0: My great grandfather was also a furrier. (laughs) Um, So the
1: story that I grew up with was that they had the store in Berlin, my great grandfather had a non Jewish employee. And that after Hitler came to power, this individual came to work one day, assaulted my great grandmother and said that the store was now his the business was now his, and they had to leave. And that that is the trigger point for when they left Germany, they went to several different countries, basically trying to get exit visas into the United States um, and eventually did move to New York. Very, again, classic immigration story, started the fur business in New York. And then my great-grandfather was one of five children. He and two brothers ultimately made it to New York. The other two died in the Holocaust. There was one sister, she and both of her children died in a mass grave. And then there was one other brother who his children are the ones that I thought of as the real survivors, that he has a very complex and heart-wrenching story, Um, but he had three children, all of whom eventually came to the States as well. So growing up with what happened to them and what happened to their father felt much more resonant to me than my grandma but my grandmother if i were to psychoanalyze her please go forth, um, which i did a lot while she was alive as well same <laughs> i think that she had like also residual guilt that her story wasn't necessarily as bad even though again it was bad and she had she had a lot of fear that she on the boat to america had a cough and was threatened by her own parents. Do not cough. You have like you have to be healthy. When they were on their running through Europe trip, she um borrowed a cousin's bicycle at one point and was riding it and was stopped in the street by older boys who somehow recognized that she was a Jew and, you know, became terrified. So she had the trauma of the Holocaust a thousand percent. And I think that now as I've grown up, I see her more through this lens of survivor even though it wasn't the dramatic camp story that i thought was the mark of surviving
0: that totally resonates with me because my grandparents also did not have that kind of a dramatic story but their early lives were very shaped by by the events of the holocaust and i think probably their psychology as well um my grandmother's family and i don't know nearly as much about their history as as you seem to know about your family i wish i knew more but i know that they got out by going to Canada. And so a lot of my family, my extended family is still in Canada. And my Nana, and I've said this on the podcast before, talking about other books, but my Nana would always say, but for the grace of God, go I like, it's only because I made it to Canada that I'm here. So I I think it's important just to recognize, and this speaks to my own reading experience as well. And a couple of the reviews that I read, like, one of the most meaningful things about this book, I think is that it really It zooms in on a very specific experience of a child in the Holocaust, which is important for so many reasons. I think the most important reason, at least for me, is that like so often when we read about the Holocaust, especially now, all these years later, even though it wasn't really that long ago, we see these huge numbers and it's like, oh, it's a historical thing. Like it's this huge, terrible thing that happened. And because it was so awful, I think it's really easy to like not believe that it happened, kind of like we're now several generations out. And even as somebody from a Jewish family, I'll admit that like, you can distance yourself from that because the history of it becomes somewhat sanitized over time in the way that it's written about. Jane Yolen's goal in writing this book was to put kids in the story. She's written about this. She's talked about this. She wanted young readers to feel more grounded in a Holocaust narrative so that they could understand what happened because when she was doing her research for the book, she actually spent a few months at an elementary school in Indianapolis. And as she was telling them about the plot of the book, they all were like, oh, so that's not real, right? Like this is a made up story. And that kind of drove home for her even further, how important it was to give us a specific experience. So Hannah time travels back to 1941, Poland, when she gets up to open the door for Elijah during Seder, again, like rolling her eyes the whole way. This is so dumb. She opens the door and she finds herself in a completely different place and time with a different name, a different identity. Um, I'm gonna try this, Samantha, okay? You got this. <laughs> Chaya, right? Chaya, perfect. Okay, perfect. and you know what? I I I, I credit L'Chaim, obviously and Fiddler on the Roof because of Chava. Chava, so Chaya, Haya, yep. A lot of my young Jewish education, I can't lie to you, comes from Anatevka and Fiddler on the Roof. I think it's true for a lot of us. <laughs> it's working for me all these years later. Okay, so Haya is in 1941 Poland. She finds herself in the kitchen of this family that she doesn't recognize with a woman named, I'm, I'm gonna need you to take that's this that, her So she's this with this
1: woman named Gittel, who it turns out is okay. her aunt in this like alternate reality.
0: Right. And then her uncle Schmuel, Sh- who is Gittel's brother and Schmuel's getting married tomorrow. How exciting. The best day ever. Can you do his fiance's name?
1: So his fiance's name is Feige. Okay. And she, yeah, she lives in like the next village over. And I I fell in love with all these people like right away. Schmuel seems like the coolest person in like a pre-Holocaust shtetl small town community. He's, like, the hottie of the shuttle. (laughs) Right? 100%. And it's hilarious.
0: And his fiancé is, like, fancy.
1: Yes. But before we got to his fiancé, I had no memory of this when, like, and I doubt that I would have gotten it as a kid when, like, they're discussing the wedding night that uh, Gittel and Chaya slash Hannah are going to, like, sleep at someone else's house that night. And Gittel's like, we can't like, you know, say anything. And Hannah, Chaya is just like, oh, I know what a wedding night is. It's on General Hospital. I think (laughs) I actually laughed out loud. Like It was amazing. Yeah. That was really funny because Shmuel's like, the walls are thin. Like he's getting prepared for like what this night is going to be. And I was just like, wow.
0: He's ready. He's ready. And and the interesting thing about all these references that Chaya is making is that In this reality, Haya is a new arrival to the shuttle her parents have both passed away. Um, She almost died in Lublin. And so everything they say they're like, Oh, that must just be something from your old life or like you still have a fever. You don't know what's going on general hospital. That's not a thing. So she's she's gotten acquainted with these people that now surround her and she's like, I don't get it. There's already a lot of, of mentions of memory what she remembers what she doesn't remember, and that's a theme we see throughout the book. But fairly quickly, like we're off to the wedding. Shmuel and Feiga are getting married, and it's very exciting. And we we talked about this recently in um, the episode about the Titanic book. But it's really interesting to read a book where, like, you know what how it's going to end. Yeah, and it's such a mark of a talented writer when when the author can like still establish the tension of what's going to happen next like we as readers know that in some way or another this is going to take a terrible turn because hannah as haya has to learn a lesson about how important it is to remember these events but i i was not prepared for the nazis to like just be waiting for them at the wedding i totally agree it felt very fast like i thought that there would be
1: more establishing of like the pre-holocaust world and i think that jane yolen does a beautiful job of like you can see they're in this like small community. They're traveling to another one. You learn a lot about like, I don't know, the social structures of their shtetl, their small Jewish world. But like, I did not remember and was not prepared, but like they didn't even get to the wedding part.
0: No, and Shmuel and Feige were so excited. They were pumped, not just because of the wedding night, but they like couldn't wait to get married. And- you could sense the excitement with these little girls that Hannah as Haya has met and she's like singing songs with them and it feels very exciting. And I was like, okay, we're going to have one good night, right? Like tomorrow the Nazis are going to come, but no, the Nazis come and they inform this community that they are being resettled is a language that's used that the government is resettling all Jews elsewhere. And of course they tell them all kinds of lies about the fact that like Other soldiers have already gone back to their homes to gather their things and they'll be sent separately. And all of the older folks who like couldn't make the trip for the wedding have also been sent safely and like everybody's happy and safe and sound. And when you get to your resettlement location, everything's going to be fine. No, not so. As we all unfortunately know too well. And the first, I mean, there's just like so many horrible scenes, just like chilling to the bone scenes. But of course, getting into these cattle cars is so traumatic for Hannah and for all these people in the book, and I think for readers as well, like Jane Yolen does not shy away from the details of what happened on this kind of trip. The lack of access to air that people had, there was no room to breathe, there were no stops made, so anybody who had to go to the bathroom or get sick went to the bathroom or got sick where they were. She writes about babies dying in their parents' arms. Again, like these are things that I I know and I understand because I've read about them. I took a Jewish history class in college. And for that class, I took a trip to the National Holocaust Museum in Washington, DC, and I went alone because I didn't know anybody else in the class. And I was like, this is like going to be an interesting experience for me. Like I'm going to learn a lot. And for those who've been there, I would assume you have been there, Samantha, in your line of work, but they have one of the actual cattle cars there and you can walk through it. And it is a very eerie experience. And being there really informed the way that I read that part of the book. Yeah, no, absolutely. And
1: I've been to not just the museum, but several of the different camps. And I think part of what really comes up is just like, I have a lack of spatial reasoning in real life, but to be in these places and to say, this is the number of people that needed to fit into this space, or this is the number of people who slept in this bed. And my mind doesn't work that way to say that, oh, this is a bed that, all right, I as like a single adult would say it's a little squishy, but I could make it happen. And then to be told five people needed to sleep in here. Like it just, there are so many things about the logistics of how this happened that are just staggering. And I think in the book, like there's just a 180 that's done. They go completely from talking about the chickens that they're going to eat at this wedding. And all of a sudden they're in this cramped space and they need to adjust instantaneously. There's not like in a lot of Holocaust narratives, because this is the way that the war went for a lot, of most people, there were stages You know, there was going into a ghetto, there were rations, there were like steps to prepare you. And in the way that this book is written, I'm assuming partially because it's like a middle grade fiction book and you need to just kind of keep the plot line moving. There's not time to go through all the stages of the war and also for the shock value of it. The only people who like figure out what's happening right away are Hannah because of her still existing memories of the past slash future depending on like what timeline we're operating on and like the local essentially magician slash fortune teller yeah which was a role in the like someone who would be not like the village fool but someone who was there to bring humor bring like scholarly jokes um someone who was like hired to basically be the entertainment like the MC of the wedding he gets it immediately and like nobody else does even when they're already in the the cattle car I was like struck by I don't know if it's the optimism or just like the willful ignorance of like we're still gonna listen to them it's gonna be fine if this is the worst thing that happens that we're stuck in this cramped environment for a couple days like of course, if that's the worst that happens, then most people could have handled that. Obviously, there we hear about the dead bodies like almost immediately. So there are those who didn't. But it just really struck me the immediacy of that was before. Everything was fine. We're dancing to this wedding. And now like we're in survival mode immediately.
0: And there's no more tangible evidence of that shift than the fact that Faya is wearing her wedding dress. The entire time. And just the visual of that, like we are reminded at every turn that she has this like beautiful white wedding dress. Again, she's kind of fancy. I believe her father was the rabbi. And so she's a big deal in town. She has like the finest wedding dress that money could buy. She was so excited. And she she's, she's wearing it on this cattle car. She's wearing it as she's being like thrown around by the soldiers once they arrive. It's immediately ruined and she's still wearing it. And just that visual... It, it really like drives home what's going on. And Hannah like so wants to be the hero. Like Hannah is like, no, I know what's going on. Like, let me explain to you. And I think the author did a really smart thing by setting up Haya's backstory the way she did because it makes it very easy for everybody to be like, you don't remember anything. Like, how could you remember this? And, and it allows readers to dive further into this theme of memory because Hannah's memory is getting very mixed up between these time periods in which she's living. So they get to the camp. And I mean, I think listeners can imagine how dark it gets. Samantha, like where do we even start? Where Where should we go here now that they've arrived? They're welcomed is the wrong word. They're brought into the camp, right. their heads are shaved.
1: I think part of what's like really, I, rem- like I, I must've had a visceral memory of this, is the showering and the shaving that all the women are brought into A room and Hannah has this memory that like she knows that the showers were in some cases in the camps a metaphor that it wasn't water that would come out it was the poison gas that was ultimately used to kill millions upon millions of people but in this case it is an actual shower but she's freaking out going in and is almost relieved that Okay, we didn't die then it's it's a real shower. And I thought that one of the things that like showed how quickly circumstances change is that after their heads are shaved, everyone gets to pick an outfit. And like one of her first faux pas after her time jump had been that like when she gets to the shtetl, Gittel gives her this dress to wear to what was supposed to be Shmuel's wedding. And she is like very much a middle school girl is disgusted by this like sailor dress that she's supposed to wear. It's babyish, it's long. Like she's so not into it, which is really offensive to Gittel who's like, this is like the dress. It's the, you look like a princess. It's so beautiful compared to what else exists in the community. And the dress is taken away from her immediately. And she puts on essentially like a rag and is already like the you know, hindsight has already changed. She's already missing the dress that she just made fun of, you know, four days before. And then she goes to, is it the tattoo artist? Yeah. Who it turns out that this dress that she's picked out of this rag pile was his daughters. And that to me was like, Oh my God, like thank you for hitting us already with so many traumas upon traumas that she has the same name as his daughter and is now wearing his dress. And I thought that that would come up more as like this ghost girl that she's now embodying in some way. But we don't really hear about it again. But
0: it's definitely stuck with me. Yeah, it was like on to the next trauma after that. It it definitely stuck with you. And I think something that I forget is that like, there were a lot of Jewish people who were made to play roles like being the tattoo artists, like the the soldiers forced many Jews to do their bidding in ways that were like very public, kind of. So there were Jews actually giving tattoos to the prisoners. There were Jewish children who were responsible for like hauling the bodies around after they died. And that comes back later in the book. We see that happen again and again in this book. And it just these are the details I think that are easy to gloss over when you're just like reading the statistics, but to have a front row seat to like what life was actually like and the fact that like these people are being turned against their own in these camps. And like that was part of the the torture of it was that like you had no choice, you had to do these things. And I wanted to read one quote, and this this jumps to the end, but it's it's an important point really about like what it means to be a hero in these places. And Rivka is the one to tell Haya, and Rivka becomes Haya's, Haya's very good friend, and she's been at the camp for longer, so she kind of teaches Haya the ropes. She says, my mother said before she died that it is much harder to live this way and to die this way than to go out shooting. Much harder. Haya, you're a hero. I am a hero. We are all heroes here. And I found a lot of reviews of this book and, and blog posts about this book that speak to this idea about, like the fact that like the only victory that you could have in these places during this time period as a Jew it was like just to not lose your patience lose your temper and to just figure out how to take care of each other the best you can in the moment and I think that that's what we see in this moment between the two girls and that's what we see in the interaction like the one you mentioned Samantha with the tattooist like He's not in a position to fight back against the soldiers. All that he can do is like try to be as kind as possible to the people that he is encountering. And that's the most heroic act available to him there.
1: And I think it's so powerful that now when we look back at Holocaust narratives, we all understand that because in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, a lot of survivors were shamed for like having gone, the quote is as sheep to the slaughter, that why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you try to escape? Why weren't there more prisoner uprisings or like all of these different kinds of things? And I remember reading one quote that was, you know, what does it mean to be a hero? Is the hero the person who ran away and went to fight in the woods as a partisan and to sabotage the Nazis? Um, It was from someone who was a partisan who said, maybe the more like I did that and people called me a hero, but maybe the more heroic thing would have been to stay with my elderly mother and go through whatever it was that was going to come our way. So my mother wasn't alone. And these questions of what it means to be a hero, is it to have like the one moment and go out in the blaze of glory, so to speak, or these simple like moments of resilience. And I think we see that throughout the whole book. And it was interesting to me that, this this fictional camp because it takes elements from a few different ones we're very much on the women's side of the camp like we see the men a few times but especially the way that these women like came together to protect the children of the camp like those are the moments of heroism that both like in the holocaust i feel like aren't necessarily talked about but also as you said in the intro we're recording this days after an absolutely tragic shooting at a, the elementary school in Texas, once again, not that all teachers are women, but like these women are protecting children in these selfless ways. And I, I think these are tremendously heroic acts um, that don't necessarily get their airtime in the way that the going out of the blaze of fire, so to speak, does.
0: I agree with all of that. And and what you said about we're, we're so centered in the experience of the women at this camp, which makes it very jarring toward the end of the book when the men come back. And to set up this scene, which is very heavy, um, of course, Haya is just living through the trauma and terror of every day in this camp. We get a lot of details about what it means to work there and all of the survival skills that she learns from Rivka and the other kids that she meets, they have to hide in the garbage dump when the soldiers come, because when the soldiers show up, they do a thing called the choosing, which is the word that they have used to describe the point in time at which they come and select which people will be taken to the ovens um, to be what they called processed, which obviously means murdered. At this point, we know that all of the new prisoners are going straight to the ovens. And so Haya and her peers are like meant to kind of feel grateful for the fact that they get to like still be living this heinous existence and Haya becomes very aware of of sort of the politics of the choosings and of course the goal becomes to avoid the choosings. Gittel and Shmuel uh, have an escape plan and Gittel tells Haya that she has it under control like you'll know when it's happening just trust me. And that attempt is foiled in the middle of the night. And and at the time, it seems like everything's going to be okay. Like they were caught by the soldiers, but Gittel sort of thinks really fast on her feet. And we feel like everything's going to be okay. The next day at their like roll call um, in the morning, the men, all of whom are people that Haya recognized from her short time in the village, one of whom is Shmuel, um, they're lined up and shot against a wall, which... I'm happy that, that that actual moment was not described in detail. I was like, is she going to do this? Like, is she actually, I don't think she ever like actually writes the words like they were then shot. Like there's a mention of guns and then the wall. And then we just kind of hear that their bodies are being cleared away. Um, Fyga like goes to be with Shmuel because she says like, now we will be married under God's canopy, the sky, which is so sad and dark and Again, like there's strains of this Titanic book that we just covered on the show of like, no, like I don't want to get in a in a lifeboat. I'll stay with you on the ship. So the men come back and you're like, oh, right. I forgot that these other people that Haya had met are still here and they're living this whole other life that it it could be darker. Like we don't even know what's going on with these men. Right. No. And it's it's so
1: resonant. um, I think what you said that she doesn't get too into the graphic details, which almost... I don't know if it makes it better or worse because like your mind goes to all these places, but it definitely felt almost aligned with the language of the camp. There's all, as you said, all these code words, there's the choosing, there's processing. Anytime that anyone like steals anything, they're calling it, they organized it for each other. It all feels very mechanical and methodical. And I'm imagining that's really a survival tactic that you have to get out of your body a little bit and just like think of this as a business. We're getting through the day to day doing what we have to do. And I think it's the same thing when it comes to how certain traumas are described. There are certain things that Jane Yolen gives like deeply intimate detail about like the way that one of the children um, from the village is ultimately like doesn't make it to the garbage dump during a choosing and is taken away and you get all the graphic details up to the last part, which is left ambiguous, but you know what happens. You know that he doesn't come back and therefore he was killed. Um, And the same thing with the shooting. Like we, you know, we hear again, the the details of, like you said, Feige running over to Shmuel and I'm like, oh my God. And then they're gone. And it's just, it's heartbreaking because ultimately a, a good Holocaust book, whatever that means Has to be because that's like the whole point. But I don't think I was prepared for just like everyone. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Everyone dies. (laughs) Not everyone. There's a couple of survivors and they're all like very meaningful. But I think that part of, especially as a kid reading Holocaust fiction, or I remember seeing like Holocaust plays, the expectation is based on the way that like children's literature works. The protagonist survives. The good people survive because that's how stories work. There's a happily ever after. And I think Holocaust literature, and I imagine literature about other tragedies, I just happen to know this one best, flips it on its head that just because the person was the protagonist or they were good or they're supposed to be the hero, a lot of times the point is that they don't survive because you didn't survive just because you're the main character.
0: Well, and and Hayad, dies like hannah lives and and this is confusing this is where the time travel gets a little funky but haya gives up her opportunity to live to rivka there is a group of little girls that are rounded up by a soldier who literally says like i have three more spots to fill and i'm going to just pick three of you at random and haya is originally the one who is spared and Rivka is wearing a kerchief on her head and Haya, knowing that these men like don't distinguish between these Jewish children at all is like, just give me your kerchief and I'll put it on instead. And the last image we have of her at the camp is of her walking toward the oven and like trying to calm the other children down by telling them a story. So as far as we know, Haya, if there was a Haya, if we're meant to believe that Haya was a real person in 1941, she is killed in this tragedy But it's at that moment that we come back to Hannah's contemporary reality and we actually learn that her Aunt Eva, who she's like obsessed with in in present day, is Rivka. And Grandpa Will is Wolf, who was this boy who was tasked with hauling the bodies um, who were dead at the camp. So a lot of these things do come together. It's a lot of heaviness at once. But I think ultimately what Hannah learns is the power of remembering, because the book opens with the line, I'm tired of remembering, like, I don't want to remember anymore. And then the final line is about the power of remembering about like, I will remember, we must remember. So it brings us full circle. And Hannah has learned like the lesson that she's meant to learn. Samantha, how do you think this book differs from other Holocaust literature? What does it bring to the table that's different?
1: I think the time travel aspect is really interesting. That makes it different because you're able to understand both like i mean it's one person but hannah and chaya that hannah i think we're supposed to relate to she's from new rochelle she's not particularly cool we get some like references that she and her friend rosemary aren't necessarily accepted by the cool kids but she's contemporary or was contemporary when the book was written so you're not just automatically plopped back into this world that's not yours. You have this like guide with you and yeah. you're figuring it out alongside her and you get to know her Chaya self and all of the people around her. You get to know Rifka. You get to know the other girls in her like gang that there's Rachel who you meet super briefly who like was probably the coolest girl in the village because she walks up to this newcomer and it's like, we're going to be best friends. And then ultimately yeah. she dies before they even get to the camp and you get to meet Shifra, who like was the sidekick, but becomes like Chaya's just companion. Um, So I think it makes it different because you see it through these multiple lenses. And I think the emphasis on memory is deeply powerful. So in Hebrew, um, just to nerd out for a moment, as as one does, there's no real word for history. And modern Hebrew, if you were to say history, you would say historia, which I think we could all figure out is not necessarily a traditional Hebrew word, but is an adaptation of yeah. an English, or I, I apologize for my lack of etymology knowledge. I'm not sure where the word history comes from in the English language, but it's from there. Kind Latin, in uh, a romance I'll language. Guess, story, yes. I would imagine. Instead, the word that we have is zachor, which is the word for memory. So part of like, especially by connecting this Holocaust story to the Passover Seder is it's all about collective memory. You're not supposed to see time as this linear thing, that that was past, this is present, tomorrow's future, but instead her relatives and Hannah herself are being commanded to see yourself as though this had actually happened to you. Obviously a time travel narrative takes that to a really intense extreme, but I think it really speaks to this experience of non-linear time and cyclical time. And to say that I was there, I came out of Egypt. I think in the beginning of the book, we see a few different things from that, both from like the relatives that she's weirded out by, but also when she talks about what she's looking forward to at like night number two, she talks about her grandpa, Dan, who's like American and doesn't have a weird accent and like is a normal from her perspective grandpa. Um, She says he tells stories. And then when people ask, he says, how do I know I was there? And she as like a 12 year old girl is laughing like, oh, that's silly Grandpa Dan. But ultimately, that's what it's supposed to be. You're supposed to think of it as though, not that I'm telling the story of something that happened in the past, but I'm telling you that I see myself as though I went out from Egypt. And in this case, she embodies this Holocaust narrative in a way that just a regular historical fiction might not lead you as the reader to be able to put yourself into because it's so other,
0: You listen to the show, so you know it's coming next. It's the big question, Samantha. You're putting on your chapstick to prepare. On the whole, Samantha, how did the experience of coming back to the devil's arithmetic compare to your memories of reading it for the first time or to your expectations of it?
1: It really was much more powerful than I was expecting. I, again, read a lot of Holocaust literature as a kid, probably read a lot of it Too young in retrospect because I have a lot of memories of being deeply confused about timelines and probably like Hannah, what was real and what wasn't. Um, I remember hearing my grandmother's stories and then watching Sound of Music, which, other than Fiddler on the Roof, was like the movie that I probably watched most of all, and conflating these narratives of Grandma escaped the Nazis, the Von Trapps escaped the Nazis they knew each other somehow. Like I I heard all this so young that I didn't know how to separate it. And I think the same thing with The Devil's Arithmetic that I was probably when I read it for the first time in such a vortex of all these different stories that I probably didn't take it as seriously then as I did now. I also, as we record this, um, I'm a new mom. I have a seven week old. And I think reading it at this juncture was also like extra resonant because while my son is seven weeks old, we're hopefully not going to talk about the Holocaust for at least like a little bit. Yeah. You have time. Um, Just, just a little. I think there's something again, really powerful about like thinking about, well, what are the things that I want him to know from like from such a young age that he doesn't remember learning them. I think that's part of Mm. where like my Jewish identity comes into play of like What are the things that are so ingrained in me that I can't separate them out? And that's amazing and so powerful. And what are the things that it's okay to separate out and to be able to nitpick or pinpoint a little bit more. So yeah, all of this came together in a very interesting way. And it was, it was sad. It was just a really sad read that there's not necessarily a happy ending. Hannah comes through, like we said, Hannah ends up back in the hallway outside of her grandparents' apartment. And she and her Aunt Ava, like, talk about, you know, afterwards. And, like, I think I understand it that she tells Aunt Ava what she went through and, like, turns out she was named, contemporary Hannah was named after Holocaust Chaya, who had originally saved the grandmother. So I don't really understand how all the timelines are meant to make sense with that. And we find out that, like, Gittle survived. So like they're pockets of what I think are meant to like leave you something other than just like deeply depressed. But ultimately like the story ends that like the 12 year old girl died and it's really sad.
0: Yeah it's super sad and, and it's heavy and this conversation is heavy and listeners like I... As much as I love when you show up to listen to me talk about Babysitter's Club, it's so important that you show up to hear me talk about a book like this. And I'm so appreciative of you, Samantha, for bringing your knowledge to this story, filling in so many gaps for me and just reflecting on what is a really difficult book to read at any time, particularly at this moment particularly as a new mom, I'm sure you're in your feelings that much more. So thank you so much. And I think that this conversation will hopefully give listeners a lot to reflect on. I know it will give me a lot to reflect on. Other than the devil's arithmetic, Samantha, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners?
1: So I always try to have a fiction and a nonfiction going at the same time. Um, So fiction wise, I just finished reading The Magnolia Palace by Fiona Davis. She has this really awesome series of books that each one is set around a New York City landmark, like some kind of building or space. And then they all have two different historical timelines that they're following that somehow conflate with each other. So I won't give the spoilers about like how That happens because I retain the wonderment probably of the child who read The Devil's Arithmetic that like anyone else would be like, oh, I figured that out, you know, from page two. And I'm just like, whoa. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, Magnolia Palace was the fiction that I just finished, which did take me six of the seven weeks of my son's life, which is not a commentary on the pace of the book, but um, I'm really proud that I can finally say I finished it because that's not my usual reading pace. And then um, nonfiction wise, I have been reading Travels with George um, in Search of Washington and His Legacy. This is from Nathaniel Philbrick, and it's this like history-based travelogue where the author decides that he's going to like follow the path of George Washington's inaugural journey around the 13 original colonies of the United States. And like what's there in all of these contemporary spaces and what it has to say about how we're grappling with race in America right now and history and like legacy and all sorts of different things. So I'm in that right now. Part of it is an uncomfortable read, but in a good way, not in a, tragic Holocaust type of way, um, but in a way that pushes of like, what does it mean to go to Mount Vernon now? And how do we deal with the legacy of slavery, but also the legacy of this person who shaped our country and how all these different pieces come together?
0: Cool. Well, listeners, you will find links to those recommendations in the show notes for this episode. Samantha, let's talk about your book. It is called hashtag antisemitism coming of age during the resurgence of hate. Tell me everything. So the book came about
1: actually in a really, I think, I hope interesting way. I was doing my doctoral research. um, And as I said, my expertise has been um, a lot in Jewish identity development and specifically with Jewish teens. So I was working with Jewish Gen Zers. Um, Generation Z is the demographic cohort following us millennials. uh, Starts in roughly 1996, 1997, depending on different measurements and ends in about 2012. So basically everyone who's following us. And, One of the questions that I asked the teens who I was interviewing for my research was what comes to mind when I say Jewish space? What's a Jewish space for you? And for that part, I got all of the answers I expected. Camp, synagogue, Mm. my grandma's house, like probably what Hannah would have said or either of us would have said. And then the follow-up question to that was, do you feel comfortable in those spaces? And I thought that the conversations that I was gonna have would be like the ones my millennial peers and I were having. Is my gender identity affirmed in Jewish spaces? Are my politics part of the mainstream? Can I talk about Israel in ways that feel personally meaningful for me? Like these meta type of questions. And instead, I got what I have referred to as heartbreakingly practical answers, more to the effect of Oh, yeah. Since the shooting at the synagogue in Pittsburgh, the synagogue that my parents go to has an armed security guard all the time. So, yeah, I feel safe. Or the Jewish school in my community got government funding for bulletproof glass. So I guess it sucks that we have to do that, but it's good that we have it. And I had this moment of like, oh, my God. It really struck me how much the uptick in anti-Semitism from both the political left and the right and in person and on social media and all these different elements was shaping Jewish identity and ultimately shaping the choices that Gen Zers are making, for better or for worse. I talked to a lot of teens and college students who, on the one hand, said, I'm really scared to present Jewishly in public, so I'm not wearing a Star of David necklace or I'm not wearing a t-shirt with Hebrew writing on it because I'm frightened. And that's a really legitimate response to the intimidation that these students are facing. And then I spoke to just as many others who said, I'm not religious. I totally, Ali, like you said, identify as culturally Jewish. But for the first time, I am wearing a Star of David or a yarmulke or whatever it might be, because if you're going to tell me that I'm supposed to be afraid, I'm going to be that much more defiant. And both of those are responses to the same kind of trigger going in different ways, not to say whose choices are better or whatever it is. But the book basically spurred from what does it mean to come of age during an uptick in anti-Semitism And at, I know this is an overused term coming out of the pandemic, at an unprecedented time, Gen Zers are going to be the last generation to meet Holocaust survivors in a meaningful way. Holocaust survivors are dying at a rate of thousands a day, even before COVID. Like the the end of this era of living history in that sense is coming. So what does it mean to have the burden or the responsibility of passing on those legacies? What does it mean to be like this generation of digital natives where social media is an amazing space in some ways that like I've gone down the rabbit hole of following these Jewish like micro influencers on Instagram and TikTok and like they're so creative and they're so cool. But then also you see someone posting a you know video about baking challah, something totally innocuous and just like a moment of pride and being hit with anti-Semitic remarks all through the comments and totally understanding why someone doesn't want to show that part of themselves. So how does the social media piece work? How does it, um, the current Gen Z generation is the most Diverse Jewish demographic cohort that there's ever been in terms of Jews of color and people coming from different ethnic, racial, socioeconomic backgrounds. So, what does it mean when someone says, like, you don't look Jewish? How does that factor in? So, all of those questions kind of came together in what I'm calling like this snapshot in time, looking at how anti Semitism impacts all of these various parts of individual and collective identity development and it also includes parts of my own story and the story of my family that i shared here of like how how we're
0: shaping any and all of the above wow it sounds like an enormous amount of research an enormous amount of work congratulations on putting it all together listeners go check it out i will make sure that you have a link in the show notes Samantha, I really am so grateful to you for your time, for your expertise, for helping us to remember, and I hope that we can stay in touch, and I hope to keep learning from you. I I really appreciate all that you had to say today. Thank you so much. This was such a great conversation, and
1: thank you for having me. Bye.
0: SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.